and I'm happy to affirm brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with me. One of my best pastor friends out there is a multi-site church pastor. My parents attend a multi-service church. I love my multi-site and multi-service church friends. You know, we're, we're one in the gospel. We do the Great Commission together. I'm just saying, okay, but let's look at the Bible. And, and ask ourselves, what's the wisest and what's the most biblical, I dare say, way of doing church? And when I see this uniform practice, when I see the very use of the word, uh, and when I consider implications for the Great Commission, I would say that this makes the most biblical sense. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan serves as editorial director for Nine Marks. He's also an elder in his church and is the author or editor of over a dozen books, including One Assembly, Rethinking the Multi-Site and Multi-Service Church Models from Crossway. Today, Jonathan and I discuss his argument that multi-service and multi-site models run counter to the pattern for the local church we see in the New Testament. He lays out his biblical and practical reasons for believing this, explains why how we define the Greek word for church, ekklesia, is so important in this conversation, and reflects on pushback he's received from other pastors, such as the objection that it could harm a church's evangelism. Let's get started. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Great to be here, brother. Thanks so much. So it's early April, uh, April 1st actually today, which means that we're still in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic here in the U.S. And so I think that's just led a lot of us as Christians to really contemplate afresh what it means to be the local church uh, without actually being able to gather together face to face. And I think that's just something we've all been wrestling with a lot of late. So I'm, I'm curious, what has it been like for you and your church? Yeah, it it is a it is an interesting time, isn't it? It's been challenging for our church, like it has been for many churches. Uh, at the same time, we're discovering various sweetnesses in our fellowship and our connection together. Insofar as we have kind of a thick culture of discipleship and a thick culture of hospitality in our church, and we you know we have relationships going on all week. The transition hasn't been that hard. I can imagine if you're in a church that's people show up for. 60 minutes on Sunday and that's it. I would think this is a harder time, but yeah, praise God. We're amidst the challenges. We're discovering various sweetnesses as well. Just as people look out for one another, lots of phone calls, zoom calls, stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. And I find it fascinating because um, this period that we're in this very unusual and in many ways, uncomfortable season uh, as the church thinking about Christians kind of together uh, is really an interesting tie into your new book that you're publishing here with Crossway. And the title, I think, says a lot about what you're really trying to get at with the book. And so the title is One Assembly, Rethinking the Multi-Site and Multi-Service Church Models. And so I want to just jump right into the kind of the big question, and then I'd love to spend some time digging into your reasoning. Why is it that you think the multi-site and multi-service churches need rethinking? Well, it certainly is an ironically timed release, isn't it? I mean, it's like suddenly we can't assemble together by order of the government or many of our state governments. And uh, here I am making an argument, hey, a church to be a church needs to be assembled. 
Um, wh why do I think they need to re be re rethought? Um, to answer your question, well, so, I mean, several decades ago, Matt's churches turned to the multi-service model, and eventually that was kind of 60s, that sort of started, 50s, a little bit, 60s, 1960s, 70s, and that became popular. And then by the 1980s, a few churches started experimenting with the multi-site model, and more prominently in the 1990s and into the 2000s, sort of as a quick solution to growth problems. The thing is, they never really stopped and many of them will admit this. Many of the early advocates will admit this. We were we were building our churches in the air. We we didn't really do a you know thoroughgoing biblical study. And so what I'm trying to do with this book is to say, okay, look, I I know we've already the train's out of the station here, and we're well down this road. But let's stop and do that biblical study and and understand theologically what the church is. And the main thing I argue is well, a couple of things, but pr primarily. An ecclesia in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is an assembly. It is a gathering. And so far as I'm able to d discern, there are no exceptions to that. Um, we could dig through specific passages because people will have questions about what about Corinth? What about Jerusalem? What about Acts 31 or uh, 931? Um, but yeah, the argument of the book is. An assembly is an assembly is an assembly, and a church is a church is a church, which means it assembles. So in your mind, is there any difference between multi-site and multi-service? I think for, for many Christians, many pastors, uh, we would think of those as very different categories of churches or concepts, but it seems like you're lumping them together. For the purpose, yeah, good question. For the purpose of this book, I, I am lumping them together because both of them divide the assembly. Right, one of them divides it geographically, that's the multi-site, uh, and one of them divides it chronologically, that's the multi-service. And in both cases, um, the assembly the assembly is not assembled. Uh, the nine o'clock crowd is not with the eleven o'clock crowd. The north campus is not with the south campus. Now you said. You know, are there any differences? Well, certainly, there's there's plenty of differences. I think dealing in in churches characterized by one or the other have different pastoral challenges. Um, there's a different feel. They they um, uh, evoke different possibilities. Have different challenges to them. Nonetheless, from a biblical standpoint and a theological standpoint, which is what I'm principally dealing with in this book, yeah, I would I would say they both divide the assembly and they are not as that were churches. In fact, here's here's what I argue, Matt, is that a multi-site church, a multi-service church, doesn't actually exist, theologically speaking. What 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 the multi-site church is is several churches held together by kind of an administrative mechanism. So we call it a church. Legally, it's a church. I get that. But theologically, biblically, they're actually churches, multiple assemblies. Yeah, and that's that's a very helpful clarification on kind of what you're getting at. And as, and as you said, it seems like the crux of your argument is a, a biblical argument, namely that there's just no evidence in Scripture for the idea of either multiple meetings or multiple locations for a single church, is that, or ecclesia, essentially. Is that correct? In the in early chapters of Acts, for instance, you know you have the church meeting from house to house. You have clear examples of that through in and in, in and through Acts. But is that are those separate meetings ever called the church? Well, they're not. 
three times in the early chapters of Acts, chapter two, chapter four, or five, and chapter six, you have the whole church of Jerusalem assembling together. So think about Acts chapter six, verse two, and it says the apostles assembled the whole uh, church together, the whole assembly. They called together all the disciples. So we know um, they all assembled together, and that's what made it a church. Now, did they also have separate house gatherings? Well, sure. I mean, my church does too. I'm in a small group. We often sometimes meet at my house. Sometimes we meet at the Brogy's house. Sometimes we meet at, you know. So there, there, there are smaller meetings going on, to be sure. But what makes the church in Jerusalem a church and what makes the church in Corinth a church and, uh, is the fact that they all gather together. They assemble together. Whereas what the multi-site church uh, is proposing is that you can actually have assemblies of people that never assemble and still they're an assembly. That is to say, they are a church. And I'm arguing in this book, yeah, there's just no New Testament pre- uh, precedent for that. Another question I wonder if people might have, it uh, seems like you're, you're making the case that this idea of a multi-site or multi-service kind of church, calling that, that, that single entity a single church as opposed to multiple churches, uh, doesn't have any New Testament precedent. I guess I wonder, um, could someone come back and say, you know, what about something like a microphone? It's a tool for extending the voice of a pastor, allowing him to reach more people. Uh, and that's not in the Bible. We don't have a concept of that in Scripture, and yet we don't have a problem with that. So how would you, can you elaborate a little bit on how that's a different category? It's not just about having a different tool to use to extend the reach of a, of a pastor or church leader's yeah, a great question. Uh, so, you know, the, I think theologians historically have made a distinction between elements and forms. Your elements are the things that the Bible actually instructs that we have to do. You have to have preaching. You have to have Bible reading. You have to have singing. Uh, you know, you have elders. You know, you have Lord's Supper. These are your elements. The form those things adopt are going to change from circumstance to cir- circumstance. So, in the Bible, you have to have a meeting. Well, do you meet in a house? Do you meet in a field? Do you meet in a church-dedicated building? Well, that, that, that doesn't make a difference. An analogy might be you have furniture and then you have style of furniture. So if I have a kitchen, I got to have a fridge, I got to have an oven, I got to have a kitchen table. Well, what style of oven? Is it a, is it a gas burning? Is it electric? Is it a, is it a wood burning stove? Well, that just depends on my context, right? So the form of my oven might change from context to context, but the element oven is necessary for having a kitchen. And every church, everywhere, needs to follow these certain biblical elements. We can disagree about what they are or not, but we all agree that to have a church, you have to have this. Um, microphone is clearly a form. How, how do you preach? Well, do you use a microphone? Do you do it this way? Do you do that way? Well, we can disagree on that, and different contexts might determine. But what I'm saying is a basic constituent element of a church is a gathering. That's what the word means, and that's what we see uniformly both in the Old Testament, when the word assembly is used, ecclesia in the Greek Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. Practically speaking, and just experientially speaking, why do you think it's important that we understand the church as this uh, one physical gathering of God's people in one place at, at one time? Uh, number one, just experientially, when you walk in on Sunday, you can see, hear, touch the church, Right? Uh, you can't ever see, hear, touch a multi-site, multi-service church. 
you can parts of it, yes, but not actually the church itself. And what I would say is the local church is where the universal church becomes visible. It becomes an outpost of the kingdom, right? So that you can walk into it, you know, feel it as as the temperature in the room rises because there's so many bodies and I'm trying to find a seat and I look around and I see my brothers and sisters in Christ and I hear. So a lot of this has to do with the advantages of of, of the gathering and and to connect the church to the gathering. I, I experience the church as I experience all the physical realities of the gathering. I think that's an essential part. Number one. Number two, I think that pressure that we feel when we have a full building. Now, keep in mind, I wrote this book when Capitol Hill Baptist, as a member and elder there, was stuffed to the gills. We had people standing in the back. The seats, room maybe seats a thousand. We probably had, you know, a thousand fifty, thousand one hundred or so in the room at any given time. It's, I mean, it was full. We kept stuffing in more chairs, doing our best to obey the law with fire code. So I felt it. I remember looking around for places to see for my, my family and couldn't find them or trying to get my, my, my little girls into nursery care when they were still young at this point and, you know, couldn't find them. And they'd sit all sit the entire service on my lap, two hour service on my lap. That was no fun. But what did that do? That pressure of the full building forced us to work harder to A, raise up more leaders, B, partner with other churches, C, church plant and send people out, right? So in other words, that pressure of the full room uh, concentrated our attention on working harder, as it were, at filling the Great Commission. And again, a lot of people will say, well, you'll never plant enough churches to solve your growth problems. I think that's true. And Capitol Hill is and remains stuffed to the gills. But what it has done simultaneously is it was worked really hard at partnering with other churches and sending people to other churches. In other words, we're not the only restaurant in town. We're trying to solve the hunger problem, not get people to you know eat at our restaurant. We're happy for you to eat in any number of restaurants. And so, hey, let's get to know some of those other restaurants, send people to them, partner with them, have their pastors come to our church and 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 pray with us and have have them explain their prayer request to us so we as a church can pray for them. And so we're building these relationships and partners with, partnerships with other churches. And along the way, what happens is it just becomes easy and familiar to have people spread out to those other churches, right? So what you're doing is you're you're promoting great, you, number one, you can see the church, feel the church in the assembly. Number two, you're putting kind of a great commission burden on yourself. Number three, you're developing, you're being forced to develop these different church partnerships in the process. So yeah, this goes well beyond a just, hey, look, I'm looking in the Bible and I think ecclesia means this. I, I think that's most decisive, right? What the Bible says we should obey. That is most important. Nonetheless, I think there's a lot of practical and pastoral reasons why this would be the case. And these are some of the things that I've discovered in a full church. And uh, I think we also see as we work through the New Testament. So all of this relates to what we would call church polity. So questions about how a local church is organized, its structure, what leadership looks like, uh, etc. I think for many Christians, though, that can feel kind of like secondary stuff, stuff that maybe that they wish we could kind of skip past to get to maybe quote-unquote more important issues like uh, our life together as Christians and our common commitment to Scripture and historic Christian orthodoxy, um, caring for the poor, evangelism, that kind of stuff. So why would you say that questions of church polity like this are important for Christians to think about and even discuss? Your first tier issues, meaning your your 
salvation is dependent on this. First tier gospel issues, like the gospel, create your second tier issues, meaning your, your ecclesiology, your view of baptism, your view of the supper, your view of church government, all these things that make a church a church, let's call those second tier issues. And if, if you're familiar with the phrase theological triage, that's, that's what I'm doing here. Okay, so your first tier issues are most important. The gospel, most important. Your doctrine of God, most important. Absolutely. But those first tier issues, your doctrine of the gospel creates your second tier issues. Okay? And then those second tier issues, like your doctrine of the church, what they do in turn is they protect and um, display your first tier issues. So what? It, what let's think about the supper and baptism. Well, what those do is they put on display who we think has the gospel. And as we put them on display, what do we do? Well, we protect that gospel. You get rid of your secondary issues. You get rid of your doctrine of the church. You get rid of your polity, your church government, that is. And that might work for a year or two. But ask yourself, how safe will the gospel be over 10 years, over 20 years, over a generation? Well, little by little, that water just gets spread out and people don't pay attention to it. So church government, church polity, what is the church? Answers to those kinds of questions are crucial, essential even, for protecting the gospel over time. They're also essential, crucial, for the Great Commission because it's in our life together as an assembly. You know, you said there's other more important people, things we want to think about, like our fellowship together. Okay, well, who is us? Who is our? That's part of our fellowship. Uh, apart from things like church membership and discipline, that just becomes hard to keep track of, right? And when you move out of the assembly, okay, so I'm a member of the North Campus. My, my friend John goes to the South Campus, uh, but there's lots of other people at the South Campus who I never meet or never see, and the elders kind of don't really know who's at each campus, and there's one guy who shows up on a video screen at both campuses, and Look, he doesn't really know who's at all at most campuses. Uh, so, Jonathan, are you saying that my responsibility as a church is to know everybody in the, is a member of my campus? Well, I'd say no, but spiderweb-like, I know my 10 to 15. Next, somebody next to me knows his 10 to 15. You know, she knows her 10 to 15. And together, we, showing up every week in one assembly, just have an easier time keeping track of one another and seeing one another and sitting under the same preaching and, and under the same elders who are instructing us and shepherding us. Right. So this this question of polity and this question of one campus or two, one service or three, it dramatically impacts the Christian life. And as we dramatically impact the Christian life, we back to my first point, display, protect the gospel over time. So is this the most important thing? No. And I'm happy to affirm brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with me. One of my Best pastor friends out there is a multi-site church pastor. My parents attend a multi-service church. I love my multi-site and multi-service church friends. You know, we're, we're one in the gospel. We do the Great Commission together. I'm just saying, okay, but let's look at the Bible and, and ask ourselves, what's the wisest and what's the most biblical, I dare say, way of doing church? And when I see this uniform practice, when I see the very use of the word, uh, and when I consider implications for the Great Commission, I would say that this makes the most biblical sense. You mentioned that you have many friends, uh, pastor friends, who uh, do shepherd churches that are either multi-site or multi-service or both. And I, I just wonder, what's been some of the the strongest pushback you've received from them as you've talked with them about this issue, maybe even shared the book with them? 
Yeah, uh, I, there, I would say there's two basic pushbacks. One is the evangelistic impulse, and two is the I disagree with your view of the text argument. The evangelistic impulse is a great impulse. It is basically, Jonathan, if you have all these people showing up, how do you turn them away? I just can't imagine turning them away, right? A, a, a more sophisticated version of that argument is, hey, Jonathan, as we you know plant these services and then even all these campuses, we're reaching more people for Christ and we're just having a higher rate of, of people getting saved and, and joining the church. You know, to the, to the evangelistic impulse, I would say, one, I think there's a little bit of short-term thinking there. Uh, yes, if I suddenly have 500 people showing up on my doorstep, um, A, I'm going to accommodate them one way or another. Jesus cut a hole, the, guy, the guys cut a hole in the roof and lowered the man, you know, to see Jesus. So if, if you literally have five people showing up, do something. That's not a church, though. That, that's a pretty unique Sunday. After that, you're then going to have to look hard for ways to truly churchify those extra 500 people who apparently want to join. So if you have that problem, awesome. Uh, don't take the short-term strategy, the short-term solution, add services, add sites as the best. Uh, I think evangelism is going to be served best over time as we follow the Bible. So I'm convinced that as you work to plant and partner and help other churches around you be healthy and not just worry about your own church, but you know that little church down the street and that other church across town, as you work to help them be healthy and partner with them and grow with them, you actually might see more people getting saved than just happens through your own congregation. So we evangelicals tend to be pretty short-term in our thinking, and I'm, I'm calling for more of a, we're raising children here, this takes years view. So that's, that's, that's the evangelistic pushback I get. I understand it, but I think finally it's not taking in the, the full picture. The biblical uh, pushback is, well, what about the Jerusalem church? What about the church in Corinth? What about, you know, these different examples? Or uh, I'm just not sure, Jonathan, that ecclesia means exactly what you're saying it means. And what I've offered in this book, I've not yet heard somebody read this book and disagree with the biblical arguments, but that's only because it's brand new. I'm sure it's not because everything is perfect and foolproof. Um, yeah, I think maybe the biggest challenge biblically is where they're eating the Lord's Supper in Acts chapter 2. Are they eating in those house-to-house assemblies or are they eating it all together in Solomon's colonnade, where the whole church is clearly gathering, and presumably, based on Acts chapter 2, verse 41, baptizing. So they're clearly getting together for preaching. They're clearly eating it together for for um, baptism, <clears throat> at least, again, according to chapter 2. Well, what about the Lord's Supper? Where is that happening? Um, the temple in the ancient Near East would have been kind of like a restaurant, frankly, in some ways. Uh, that's where all the sacrifices were happening, and then people would join together for meals. So I think it's entirely possible they were eating there in the temple. and um, But the, the text just doesn't say that. Where it does say they're, 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 they're breaking bread from house to house. Um, there's two different ways breaking of bread is used in the book of Acts. Sometimes it's clearly referring to a meal. A couple of times it does seem to be referring to the Lord's Supper. So the, the, perhaps the biggest biblical challenge I've heard against my uh, argument here is that, hey, I interpret those books, Breaking Bread House to House, in separate houses. Therefore, they are basically functioning like churches. Therefore, 
um, your argument doesn't hold. The problem with that, of course, is they're still all getting together in Solomon's colonnade. And that's what I'm arguing is making a church. So even if they are separately taking the Lord's Supper, which I'm not sure of, and think probably not, because um, it said they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So it seems like they're just having meals house to house. Even if they're taking the Lord's Supper, though, I still think the argument holds. Church in Jerusalem is one church because they all get together. And we have repeated examples of that in the early chapters of Acts. Yeah, I wonder if our current situation with, with the coronavirus, where we're not, uh, for very exceptional reasons, we're just not able to be getting together in, in person as churches. And so I, I guess it seems like your argument might be that, well, then that just means that the church uh, is not actually meeting together as the church, even if we are setting up our live streams and uh, setting up our Zoom calls and all that. Is that how far you would take it and essentially say that, like, uh, all the live streaming of sermons that's happening and music that's happening, that's not actually the church. It's just something else. Uh, that That's precisely what I would say. I would say the church is not, there are no churches. I don't know. There might be a few out there. My church is not gathering. I, I assume your church is not gathering. A bunch of people might be looking at a computer screen. Uh, you might be getting together on a Zoom call, but you are not ecclesia-ing. As it's used in classical Greek, as it's used in Old Testament Septuagint Greek, as it's used in the New Testament, it's simply it is simply not an assembly. It is not a church. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's, yeah, that's no, very helpful. Well, let me let me you know, let me jump in a little bit more. I mean, there's lots of good things you can do, but I think we just ex- accept that this is a uh, a providentially assigned f- uh, uh, occasion tough occasion for churches. Now, the, 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 the church exists insofar as that you still have members of the church. You still have, you still have, you still have the people and they can still, they're committed to one another, they're covenant together, they can still reach out and do all, all of that. But part of what makes them a church, the gathering, is temporarily on hold. We are, as it were, irregular churches. So we can still function as the body of Christ in caring for one another, but we just can't gather. So at one point in the book, you you say something that's um, it's kind of interesting. I think it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think you have a real weight to it. Uh, you say that those who would advocate for a multi-service or multi-site model kind of as the norm are unintentionally, quote, picking a fight with Jesus. <laughs> I wonder why, yeah. why do you say that? And maybe the real question is, is how important is this issue in your mind uh, in light of kind of what you've said so far. Yeah, again, one of what this this one multi, mega mega church multi-site pastor friend of mine is a very good friend and who read an early draft of me for me said in like all caps, I do not like this picking a fight with Jesus thing. And in fact, he's continued to joke with me. He's, you know, he's like, oh, somebody get a t-shirt, multi-site on the front, picking a fight with Jesus on the back and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, that was me trying to be a little bit provocative, um, saying, look, I think Jesus has defined the church this way, and insofar as you are redefining the church, you're calling something a church that is not a church. That is to say, these separate sites, the separate churches, yes, but when you call that whole thing a church, you are redefining the church, and that has moral implications. Uh, going back to your question about polity, polity 
you know, the, the way you organize a group has a moral implications to it. There's a moral shape uh, to these things. Uh, and so, what, yeah, what I say at one point in the book is that insofar as you're redefining the church and you're reshaping it, morally speaking, you are picking a fight with Jesus. Back to the theological triage question, how important is this? I would I'd put this right here at second tier issues. So think about a Presbyterian church. If, if you look into a Presbyterian church of book order, they would say the church is, is believers and their children, right? Their baptized children are part of the church. Uh, so that that is a definitional uh, uh, stance that Presbyterians will take. The church is the church and her children. Now, from my perspective, as a Baptist, that's redefining the church. And so I would love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ and just say, I think you're defining the church wrongly. And if I wanted to be provocative, I'd say, well, I think you're picking a fight with Jesus by defining the church wrongly. I don't think your children are a part of the church. So I would put it right there uh, in, in kind of in the same class, same category as my difference, say, with Presbyterians. I'd say they're redefining the church by calling these two separate, three separate, ten separate assemblies an assembly. What would you say to the layperson listening right now who feels convinced by what you've said but is part of a church that does have multiple services or multiple sites, um, what should that person do? Well, not knowing you and not knowing your situation, not knowing your spiritual health, not knowing what other churches, healthy churches you have around you, I'd, I'd be reluctant to say you, you must do this or you must do that. Um, one, I, I would not, I would not, suddenly up and leave your church. Um, presumably, you have relationships there, you have responsibilities there, and you need to be faithful to those. Uh, number two, uh, yeah, you might initiate a conversation with a pastor or pastors about the topic, but I, I, I wouldn't be too pushy. I wouldn't be like, hey, we have to change. We're, we're awful. Look what Jonathan Lehman or this book says here. You know, I, th- I think you'd, you'd walk into those conversations if, if they're worth having and they not aren't always worth having. Uh, I think you'd walk into those graciously, meekly, not pushy, you know, just say, hey, pastor, I've, I've come across this article or I've come across this book and I'm fairly convicted by it. What do you think? And then let your pastor make up his own mind. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think you need to, to be a jerk about it or feel like it's your obligation before God to persuade him. Of, of your own convictions of what scripture is saying. So, so meekly, humbly, you know, I think personally, uh, I think I would move towards eventually trying to make sure that I'm in a church, which meets as a church, which is a church, according to the biblical understanding of it. That is to say, there's one assembly. Um, now, whether or not I would make that move right away or over time, again, I just don't know. And not knowing you, the listener, where you're at, What's available to you? Um, I'd, I'd be I'd be reluctant to, to to offer any specific, more specific advice. Obviously, the big picture is good work gets done in multi-site, multi-service churches. People get saved. People grow in grace. Um, I think they're doing something irregularly. I think they're doing something unhelpful. I think they have a a chain, as it were, around their legs that slow them down. Nonetheless. God uses imperfect churches like my own, right? And I, I trust that you can be growing in grace there for, for a season. Um, nonetheless, 
yes, I would encourage people to be part of One Assembly Churches. So maybe as a final question, I want to return back to where we started when it, when it relates to this uh, coronavirus pandemic that we all fin- find ourselves in right now, this very weird season of not being able to gather together in person as churches, uh, whether we're in a, a, a single-site, single-service church or a multi-site uh, church. What do you hope that evangelical Christians in the U.S. and even around the world learn from this season of separation? I appreciate that. Um, I think the most obvious thing is the value of the assembly. I'm hoping people miss the assembly. And if they don't, I suspect that either reveals something about that either reveals something about the church they've chose to join or it reveals something about them. I think there is something in the born again holy spirit indwelled gospel believing individual a desire to be with the brothers and sisters uh, of God. Uh, they desire to be hearing good preaching. They desire to be singing together. They sing to one another psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. They they desire by the Holy Spirit to be praying together. So I I think true believers are going to experience that and feel that absence, almost like you would, oh, I'm away from my kids on a trip or I'm, I'm fasting in this season. I, I, I hope it, as it were, excites deeper affections for our local churches. It's certainly doing that in, in my heart, in mind, among the friends I'm not able to gather with in this time and, and the, the activities that we're not able to participate in with together. Um, I think also, conversely, I hope that this strange season that we're in where we can't gather um, helps us recognize the sovereignty of God over all the seasons of our life, both the times of uh, feasting and the, the time of the times when we feel famished both. Uh, the Lord is sovereign over these, and we, we can trust that even in this time when we can't gather as churches, the Lord is doing good things, even if we can't always see how, uh, see precisely what his hand is tracing out. To know that his hand is tracing something out is good. Um, I guess that'd be the second thing I'd want people to learn. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, help us Uh, ask some of these tough questions and look to scripture to understand what it is actually teaching us about what it means to be the church. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, brother. Hope it's helpful. And uh, I just encourage people to to keep studying their Bibles on this topic. I, I think the Bible does speak to it. And so even if my book doesn't say it as well as could be said, I think you'll find the answers there. That was Jonathan Lehman on multi-service and multi-site church models. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, One Assembly, Rethinking the Multi-Site and Multi-Service Church Models, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry 
that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.